it applies to creation and to our understanding of creation, and that this uh, exemplifies really a central uh, uh, mandate of Scripture, which is to meditate on your word or to think about it, to reflect upon what its significance is and the implications of your word for understanding your creation. And Father, we pray that as we think through these things, that you will just uh, help us to be even more impressed with who you are and how great your power is to have created such a such an incredibly complex universe, and that yet that just is is very easy, something very easy for you to do, and that as we face the challenges or <clears throat> difficulties in our lives, that it's so easy for you to handle those things. Yet we just need to learn to trust you and that we have such a great example around of your power, and that if you can do all of the things that we see in creation, then you can easily handle the situations in our own lives. And so we pray that this would be a time that will bring our attention and focus upon uh, who, who you are and how great you are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, last night we started talking about creation, and that always reminds me about how we talked about how man is so uh, arrogant, thinking that he can... Uh, do anything that he wants to do and he can accomplish anything and that many many scientists have just become so uh, <clears throat> so over overloaded with uh, and so over impressed with their own abilities that they believe that they can actually create life uh, in the in the laboratory and that they really don't need God and so one day uh, one scientist uh, actually challenged God and said now that we can create life in the laboratory we don't need you and so God uh, looked at him and said, well, really? Well, if you don't need me, I'd be glad to go away. But um, before I do that, let me just challenge you to a little contest. And uh, we'll just see who can uh, create life the fastest. And I said, I'll, and God said, because I'm issuing the challenge, I'm going to let you go first. And so the scientist said, okay, I'll, I'll accept that challenge. And he reached down to grab some dirt, and God said, uh-uh, uh-uh, you make your own dirt. All right, last night we started with this question on the age of the earth. And the debate is over whether the, the earth is a young earth or whether the earth is an old earth. And so the question is, what's the significance of that? And we'll get into that a little more when we wrap things up tomorrow night. But it has to do with how we approach and understand the Scripture. And it has, even though it's one of those foundational or behind-the-scenes type of uh, doctrines, it does impact how people approach the Word of God, approach God, approach His His Word, and how they think about the things that are going on in our world and are developed uh, in the realm of science or in other areas of human disciplines where conclusions are reached that are apart from or distinct from uh, the Word of God without any consultation with the Word. And I believe that that God in His Word may not give us a detailed structure of uh, every area of thought, but He gives us a basic framework of so that we can then go into creation and whatever man does within the within the framework of creative activity or intellectual activity that ultimately a a foundation or a framework can be uh, established from scripture and then what we do in that area of thought uh, must conform to to what is revealed in scripture 
And a lot of times that takes some digging and sometimes not so much digging. But when it comes to the age of the earth, this is a great debate between uh, recent earth, young earth creationists, as they're called, and many other evangelicals who try to accept, uh, come up with various theories on creation that are uh, consistent with the findings of, of modern science. So I started off with two foundational introductory matters, just by way of a quick review. The first being the question of authority. Who's the boss? How do you uh, decide which conclusions have the ultimate authority? In other words, who's the traffic cop in knowledge? Is it ultimately human reason, uh, human experience, a combination of the two, uh, intuition, uh, or is it revelation? Is it ultimately what God says? And then you start with firm conclusions from the Word of God. And then from that vantage point, that starting point, you use that to as your interpretive framework? Or do you start from uh, independent human experience or independent human reason? And as I pointed out last time, those are limited. And there's too much information, too much data that we just don't have to be able to come to uh, starting points that are within the creation. So we have to rely on information from outside of the creation. The second big question is interpretation. Once we decide that the Word of God is infallible, that it is inerrant, and therefore what it says is true, the next question is, well, what does it mean? Because you can absolutely destroy the true literal meaning of the text by your interpretation. If you come along with an allegorical interpretation, some sort of a spiritualization of the text, uh, you don't do the proper homework, then your interpretive methodology can do away and destroy what the actual meaning of the text is. So I gave you this chart, and that's on a handout because that's a lot of information there. Some people didn't get that get that down. Where I talk about reason is rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism, and they all have a starting point of faith in human ability, ultimate faith in human ability, and they use a methodology that starts with human logic independent of independent of divine revelation. Now, I used the illustration last time when talking about rationalism that the reason is just a logic machine. It's like a computer or calculator. But in order for the machine to arrive at correct conclusions, there has to be data within the logic machine. And where do you get that data? And I pointed out that everybody starts with some kind of data. Don't ever let anybody tell you, myself included, that you're not starting with certain assumptions, but you have to be able to also uh, test those assumptions. And so often you find uh, in whatever field, whether it's philosophy, science, or in theology, people who are unwilling to admit that they, they have a certain agenda or they're starting with a certain set of assumptions. And my assumptions are very clear. I believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. And if we understand it correctly, then that then provides us with the framework for understanding uh, God's creation. So revelation, therefore, must be the starting point. And the illustration I used last night, so you won't forget it, is that Adam could come up with all kinds of truth with a lowercase t as he observed and evaluated the creation that God placed him in in the Garden of Eden. He could write down many true observations about the, the trees, about the fruit in the garden, about the animals, but there was one thing that he could not come to, one, one truth that he could not derive from observation or reason alone. 
And that was the uh, truth that if he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would die. And that piece of revelatory data is what enabled him to properly understand, interpret, organize all of the other information. Everything else had to be understood within that framework that there was an ethical issue involved in the garden and it was related to one particular uh, one particular tree. So it's because he had that one piece of revelation that he could then properly understand and interpret uh, the fruit that he could eat and what he could not eat. So we, I pointed out that if you boil this down, it basically goes to the two questions. Do we evaluate exper- our experiences by the Bible or do we evaluate the Bible by our experience? Which has priority? And we always have to start with the Bible. And the Bible then tells us the way things are. When Adam ignored what God had said in terms of revelation, and he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's when uh, we all got into a major problem. Now, the next thing we addressed was just interpretation and that we interpret the scriptures in terms of a plain, literal interpretation. This doesn't deny the use of figures of speech, but we understand and interpret scripture in the normal, everyday use of language, doing word studies, grammar, syntax, things of that nature, and that enables us and helps us to come to the meaning of the text. So that the best uh, definition, definition I've heard on interpretation is that when the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, Seek no other sense, therefore take every word at its primary, ordinary, uh, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context indicate clearly otherwise. And context usually can tell you what is going on and how to understand a particular, a particular word. And we don't come to the text with conclusions that we derive apart from Scripture, and then when we come to Scripture say, well, that really doesn't fit what I've concluded over here, so let's change what the Scripture says. And I can give you several examples of this, but perhaps the, the best is just within, within the topic of creation and evolution, that for centuries the first chapters of Genesis were understood in, as to be literal history, and that the days of Genesis 1 were literal 24-hour consecutive days. But once men operating independently of Scripture began to evaluate geology and the fossils and the geologic record and coming to conclusions that the earth really seemed to be much, much older than what the Bible seemed to indicate as a relatively young earth, six, eight, ten thousand years old. And as they began to look at other things, it, it forced them to reinterpret what the Bible said. Now, they didn't come to the conclusions about the age of the earth from a new information on the meaning of the words of Scripture. When they began to, for example, come up with the day-age theory, where the days of Genesis 1 weren't literal 24-hour days, but were, those were really just uh, uh, symbolic terms for long, long periods of time, they didn't do that as a result of more insight into the meaning of the Hebrew word for day, 
Uh, they didn't do that because they had discovered new manuscripts that somehow indicated that the Hebrew word for day meant long uh, periods of time. They did it because they came to certain conclusions in science completely independent of Scripture. And then when they came to Scripture, they said, well, we have to make the Bible fit our conclusions from science. And this was uh, the point of the quote I used last night from uh, uh, Paddle Pun in his article in the Journal of the American Scientific Affiliation, where he said, It's apparent that the most straightforward understanding of Genesis, without regard to hermeneutical considerations suggested by science, is that God created the heavens and the earth in six solar days, etc. But notice that highlighted section there is that you ha- it's without regard to the hermeneutical considerations uh, suggested by science. So that his basic point is simply that you have to interpret the Bible on the basis of uh, human experience or on the basis of uh, human reasoning or the scientific, uh, scientific method. And that if you don't do that, then you're going to come to wrong conclusions. You just can't rely on the Bible alone. You know, God wasn't capable of correctly communicating the information to you, and you weren't capable of properly understanding Genesis 1 until all of a sudden in the 18th century, 19th century, modern science, with all of its great skill, suddenly discovered that the earth was uh, 50, 60, 100,000 years old. And then, of course, it's become much older uh, since then. Then I put up a basic definition of evolution that time plus chance... Uh, results in order, intelligence, and complexity, or basically another way to put it is that nothing plus no one equals everything. Where do you, when you look at a, the structure of a cell, when you look at the organization of a protein chain, an amino acid chain, what you're faced with is thousands and thousands of pieces of information. Just like looking at a computer and all of the uh, all the ones and zeros that are in a, in a in a program, and they're all organized in a certain way to produce a certain intended result. Now, if they're not put together in just the correct proper sequence, then you don't get anything. Your computer doesn't start, your programs don't work, and everything falls apart. So, if you don't have someone with giving intelligent order and structure to all this information that's in a cell, and we're not talking about the whole body, just a cell or a protein chain, then uh, you don't get anything. And yet that's what is expected uh, of us to believe it with evolution. That's why I pointed out that the bottom line in, in rationalism is ultimately faith in human ability. In empiricism, it's faith in the ability of the human mind to properly interpret experience. And it's only in Revelation that where God informs us of truth that that gives us the framework for interpreting reality. Now, all of that just by way of review, and to bring us up to the next, uh, the next point I want to make, and that is that evolution is really based on faith assumptions. Assumptions that must be taken by, by faith just as much as anything in Genesis 1 or anything re- related to the gospel. And every now and then you find scientists and evolutionists who are completely committed to evolution who will admit this. In 1960, a book was published by a uh, uh, Ph.D. professor, founder of the uh, Department of Physiology and Biochemistry at the University of Southampton in England by the name of G.A. Kirkett. 
and the name of the book was The Implications of Evolution. And in that, he said that there were basic theories that any evolutionist must assume or supposed to be true apart from any empirical evidence. If they didn't uh, just accept these as true apart from any, any evidence, then they, you could never get to the theory of evolution. And I gave you a handout on this. I'm going to go through them fairly quickly, but uh, you have those written down so you can look at them later on. The first assumption is that non-living things give rise to living material. That's the first assumption that any evolutionist has, is that non-living matter can produce living matter. That you can go from inorganic to organic matter uh, just by spontaneous generation. That's never been demonstrated. There's nothing, no evidence uh, to support that anywhere. Uh, every now and then you have somebody who claims that they have been able to produce something in the laboratory. But the problem is in the laboratory, it is organized and structured by the scientist who's performing the experiment. It's not governed by pure random, uh, pure random chance. The second assumption is that spontaneous generation occurred only once. Last night I talked about polygenesis and the fact that uh, originally evolution had the view that there were many different places where evolution had led to the development of, uh, of a, a humanoid in China, in Africa, in Australia, in Europe, but uh, especially after uh, the Second World War and the way that was used to justify the Holocaust, uh, that was rejected and because of the, the fact that it made certain races uh, inferior to others. And so the emphasis was on monogenesis. And so the second generation, the second assumption was that this occurred only once because once they realized the probabilities, they, they, they recognized that if it would be virtually impossible for this to take place a second time. The third assumption that was made, he said, was that viruses, bacteria, plants, and animals are all related. That we're all, in, in other words, there's no demarcation of kinds. When you read through Genesis, and says that everything uh, popul- repopulated and produced, reproduced after its kind. It shows that there are definite categories. But if you accept evolution is true, you really don't have a an intellectual foundation for establishing categories because there's everything becomes fluid, and there's no different difference really between you and a fish except uh, how you look and how you, you you are shaped because fish eventually evolve into into man. So uh, if it's murder to kill a human being, then it would be murder to kill a deer, and of course that's where you hear certain uh, environmentalists go. Uh, today with their uh, radical views. Fourth assumption was that protozoa, uh, single-cell life forms, gave rise to metazoa, multiple-cell life forms. Again, this is an unproven assumption. Uh, fifth, the fifth assumption he said was that various invertebrate phyla are interrelated. Everything fits together. Uh, sixth, he said that uh, the invertebrates gave rise to the vertebrates. Seventh assumption is that within the vertebrates, the fish gave rise to amphibia, the amphibia to reptiles, and the reptiles to birds and mammals. Now, the thing about this is that these are seven assumptions, each of which necessitates a belief that thousands and thousands, in fact, tens of thousands of different events took place, all in the right and proper sequence to produce 
these changes that took place. And so when you begin to look at the probabilities of all of this, it just staggers, uh, staggers the imagination. Now, Kirkett wrote with regard to these, uh, these uh, seven assumptions. He emphasized that all of them, by their nature, are not capable of experimental verification. And that, in and of itself, means it can't be science, because science is based in, on experimental uh, replication. He also said that the, the assumption that non-living non things gave rise to living material is still uh, just an assumption. Uh, the idea that biogenesis occurred only once was a matter of belief rather than proof. And he goes on in that same vein as he looked at each and explained each one of the uh, each one of these events. Now, in terms of the laws of probability, to get a series of as few as fifteen hundred events to take place in the right sequence and under the right circumstances, the mathematical probability is one in ten to the four hundred and fiftieth power. That's a 10 with 450 zeros after that. Now, just to give you some idea of how large a number that is, if all the universe was crammed with electron particles the, uh, so that every, every bit of space was filled with electrons, the maximum number of particles in the universe would only be 10 to the 130th power. So this is 10 to the 450th power. And so once you get beyond about once a chance of 1 in 10 to the 50th power beyond that, it is a statistical improbability. And so we're talking about a number that it just boggles the mind going way beyond anything that, uh, uh, that we, could even, we could even think about. Uh, when it comes to understanding all of, the, all of the data that goes into the makeup of a human cell, mathematicians have calculated that the chance of this occurring through evolution just in the development of one cell is one chance in 10 uh, to the 78,000th power. So one evolutionist replied to that, say, well, if we just give it enough time, it will happen. And that's the issue. That's what I'm talking about here is the real question is, how old is the earth and where do we and why do we keep coming up with conclusions that say the earth is not is 50,000 then it's 100,000 then it's uh, 500,000 then it's a million or 3 million years old in the universe they keep the these numbers get larger and larger and larger and the reason is not because there is hard scientific data uh, you haven't found any rocks or any stars or any fossils that have a little sign on them that said, you know, I was born on January the 5th, uh, 25,000 B.C. or 25 million B.C. Uh, they are guesses that are made based on prior assumptions. And as, as science realizes how complex and how complicated every system is, much more complicated than anybody imagined, in the 18, uh, 18th century or 19th century, when these theories were initially set forth, they realized that, that how improbable it is that this could happen by chance. So let's just add more time, and if we keep adding enough time, anything will happen. So uh, evolutionist uh, Albert Zent-Georgi, a Nobel Prize biochemist, stated that in 
in response to this that random shuffling of, of bricks will never build a cathedral or a Greek temple no matter how much time is involved. You just can't get there through time. So, when we start looking at this, we ought to ask the question, well, what does the Bible say? What kind of temporal clues are there in the Bible that gives us some idea, if not how old the universe is or how old the earth is, when was Adam created? Can we get to a pretty firm date on when God created uh, Adam? And I think we can. If we look at what the Bible says, we can uh, evaluate the numbers in the genealogies. And let me let me review something for you in case you haven't uh, recognized this. After Adam sinned, God said to them in what's called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first indication of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, when he addresses the serpent, he said that the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent on the head, indicating a fatal wound. Now, that introduced a really interesting term, the seed of the woman. Now, women usually produce an egg, not a seed. Seed's the man's job. And so this is a striking term that you find in Scripture. And then you discover that this word that is translated seed is used again and again as you go through the book of Genesis. And it's a word that is used in the plural form to indicate the descendants of somebody. And so you have the word used in various passages until you get to Abraham. And then God promised Abraham that through his seed, all nations would be blessed. And so then you trace the seed from Abraham on. You go through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Jacob's 12 sons, especially Joseph. Then you follow the, uh, the, the genealogies that are given at the beginning of, of Exodus, and you trace down through Moses and the uh, Israelites that are living at the time of the Exodus. Later on, when you get into the first chapters of First Chronicles and you read chapter after chapter of these genealogical records, there's a reason for all of that. You go back to Genesis chapter 5. Adam was so many years old, and he gave birth to uh, Seth, and then he lived, a couple, he lived uh, many more years, and then he died. And Seth lived so many years, and then he gave birth to his son, and then he lived a certain number of years beyond that. What's going on here? Why do we have these genealogies? Because we're tracing the seed, the seed of the woman, going so that when the Messiah comes... You can trace the lineage all the way back in a straight line, all the way back to Eve. That's why you have the genealogies there. So we can trace this. And by the ages that are given, we can see that Abraham lived approximately 2100 B.C. So it's about 4,000 years from here now back to Abraham. The time from Abraham to the flood was around actually 300 to 600 years, as you look at the uh, at the records there. The time from the creation of the flood was approximately 1,656 years. The length of the creation was six days. And so you can see that the age of the earth is closer to about 6,000 years. But there are some that believe that there's maybe we don't understand some of the Hebrew numbers correctly. It's not that we... Uh, not that they're they're doubting the accuracy of the numbers. It's that we're not sure how some of the numbers, uh, what they might actually actually mean. Now, I think that uh, conservatively speaking, they're they're accurate. We do understand them. That can be demonstrated a number of different ways. But in terms of the debate between 
three or four billion and uh, six thousand or ten thousand. What's what's another four thousand years? Uh, it's relatively a very young Earth and galaxy creation versus a very 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 old Earth. So we can uh, reduplicate this, and we can trace back, following the genealogies, all the way back to Abram, and we can see that Abram was born about 2166 B.C. That takes us back to Genesis chapter 12. Now, right before Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 11, we have the descendants of, of Shem. We have the story of the Tower of Babel and the uh, dispersion of the human race based on, on language. And before that, you have another genealogical record in Genesis chapter 10, but the numbers are given in Genesis chapter 11, the descendant, to, descendant to, down to Abram. So you can trace the lineage from Abram back to Noah. And that gives you a certain number for the date of the, of the, of the flood. And you put the flood around approximately around 2700 or so B.C., 2600, 2700 B.C. But as soon as you say that, all of a sudden you have a problem. Because if you watch any of those shows about archaeology or, and the Bible on uh, the Discovery Channel or PBS or, any, or History Channel or any of those, they will put the, they'll put the first dynasty of Egypt somewhere in the uh, period of about 3300, 3500 B.C. Well, wait a minute. If the first dynasties of Egypt were in the 4th millennium B.C., that's when they built the pyramids, and you have a worldwide flood in Genesis chapter chapter 9, uh, 6 through 9, then, then why didn't that flood wipe out the pyramids? Uh, if, if you really have a worldwide flood, that produces an incredible amount of, uh, of power. So how do we understand it? Maybe there's a gap, and there are many people who say, well, you just can't trust... Uh, the age in the Bible because there are gaps in the genealogy. Anybody ever heard that? There are gaps in the genealogy. Well, actually, there's only one alleged gap in the genealogy. Only one person's name who's allegedly left out of, of the genealogy. And I don't care who you are, even if they left out as many names as they put in, you're still not going to get much more than a couple of thousand years. You're not certainly not going to get millions or, or billions of years. So we have to talk a little bit about genealogies. I'm going to give you two examples of genealogies up on the screen, and I'll read this to you, and I want to know if you're, this is pop quiz time, are you sharp enough to pick out the difference between these two genealogies? The first one is an open genealogy. This is from Matthew 1. People will go to this and say, see, there's gaps in the genealogies because we know from looking at the Old Testament that there are several generations skipped in some of these, uh, some of these verses. But, it's, again, it's understanding the kind of genealogy it is. It's called an open genealogy. Abraham, starting in Matthew 1-2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, was, of course, was the father of David. So that's, that's one example of a genealogy. Now notice this example. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years, and he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. 
So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. Now, what's the difference between those two genealogies? Hmm? Time. You have numbers there. And as soon as you start putting the numbers in there, it changes the nature of the genealogy. And even if you're leaving out a couple of generations, if you're starting with a grandfather and you say that uh, the grandfather was 35 years old or 85 years old when he gave birth to the, the next generation, even if you leave out one or two uh, intervening names, the number 85 still tells you that when the grandfather or great-grandfather was 85, that's when that next generation was born. It's a closed genealogy. You can't break the numbers. Now, when I... Uh, uh, was studying Hebrew at Dallas Seminary. Uh, one of my professors was a man by the name of Al Ross, who has since written a couple of different commentaries on Genesis. He got his second Ph.D. at uh, at a little school over in England called Cambridge, and he studied uh, rabbinic theology over there. And uh, Al was just absolutely brilliant. He's one of these men who could get by on about two hours of sleep a night, and uh, you'd often see his light on in his office at the seminary until two in the morning, and he was often back in his office by five in the morning. And he wrote his uh, Ph.D. dissertation at Dallas Seminary on the, on the genealogies. And one day in class, as we were uh, looking at some of these uh, issues, I asked him if there were if if there were gaps in the genealogy. And he says, exegetically based, there are no gaps. But we can't reconcile that with what we come up with in archaeology, which indicates that that the the civilizations existed. Uh, five, six, seven thousand years BC. Now, what has he just done? He's going to interpret the Bible on the basis of the findings of archaeology and interpret the numbers rather than just sticking with the scripture and say, well, there's some problem with the way we're analyzing the data from archaeology. And so, it, again, it's very subtle and very slick, but that's what happens is we put the emphasis on, on empiricism. Now, when it comes to the genealogies, this is a very important issue because there's a lot of people who think there, there are gaps there. They, they, the argument is really based on a logical fallacy. And this logical fallacy is called the uh, fallacy of affirming the consequent. The consequent is the second term. So in, in logic, you have statements such as if P, then Q. That is, if P, if you have a certain proposition, if that's true, then Q would be the the correct conclusion if based on the veracity or the truth of P. And then the second uh, statement, it, Q is true. Now here's where you get into the fallacy. If Because the, the, it affirms the consequent, that is Q is true, and therefore P must be true. Well, if, if, P, is, if, if P is true, then Q would necessarily follow. But just because Q is true doesn't mean that P would all, the prior would also be be true. And so here's how this would be stated: If there are gaps in Genesis genealogies, such as Genesis 11, then there might be gaps in other genealogies. So in terms of the statement Q is true, they would say, well, there are gaps in other genealogies, such as Matthew 1. Therefore, conclusion: there must be gaps in the Genesis genealogies. But where this misses is that the Genesis genealogies are not 
the same kind of genealogy that you have in Matthew 1. Matthew 1 is an open genealogy with no numbers. The Genesis genealogies are closed genealogies with numbers. So you're comparing apples with oranges, so to speak. Well, we do have a, 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 an implied or a, a suggested gap, and that has to do with the genealogy of Christ in Luke 3:36. Now, I've, in, in Genesis 11, you have the original genealogy. You have Arpaxad, who give, is the father of Shelah, and then Shelah becomes the father of Eber down in 11:14. So there's the the line: Arpaxad, Shelah, and Eber. The way Luke is describing the ancestry of Jesus, he's, he's going backwards, so we have to sort of reverse it. And so we have, in 336, we have Arphaxad, who is the father of Canaan. Wait a minute, there's no Canaan listed in Genesis 11. That's the person they think was left out. And then Canaan is the son of Shelah. So the argument is, see, in Luke, you have an extra person between are Faxed and Sheila not in Genesis 11. So there's a gap. So we have one gap. Most of these individuals are between 30 and 80 when they have their, their the child that's listed there. But the argument then is that there's one gap, so there should be others. And let's let's cram about you know a million years in there to show that that it really goes back much much further. But this. Where, where did we get this extra name? And this is what's interesting. It's really a scribal error. Now, you can't read the Greek, and I, uh, I know that. But I've highlighted this. This is in the original Greek, in the Uncial manuscripts. They didn't put punctuation in the, in, in, the, um, in, the, in the lines. They didn't punctuate the sentences. They didn't put spaces between the words. Everything just ran together. They didn't hyphenate syllables. When they ran out of space in the line, they just... But the let started with the next letter on the next line. So if you had a a, a text like this, then <coughs> you're that you're that you're looking at in the Greek translation of the Septuagint, and you have the mention of uh, Canaan, who is mentioned three generations later, in uh, in Genesis chapter uh, chapter eleven, then it would be an easy thing if the if the copyist is copying the top line, if his eye slipped from the top line to the third line down, we all do that when we're reading, something distracts us, we look away from the book, we come back and we start two sentences later, and then we go, wait a minute, I must have missed something. And so what happened when he was copying is he uh, inadvertently slipped a, another name uh, that's listed two verses later uh, in uh, an earlier verse. Now, we can see this in the English that in Luke three thirty six to thirty seven we read that, um, uh, that there's a son of Canaan in, in the lower part there that comes between Mahalalel and Enosh. So, so if you read from the bottom, you have Adam, then Seth, then Enosh, and then Canaan, and that's accurate. That fits Genesis five, but. Then what happens in the Greek text is suddenly you have this same phrase, the son of Canaan, inserted between Arphaxad and Shelah somewhat earlier. Now this gets a, a little bit uh, uh, complicated, but just, just follow me here. This is a chart. You have the list of the uh, patriarchs in the left column. And on the right side you have three columns. The Hebrew text, 
the Masoretic Text, the Septuagint, abbreviated with LXX for the 70, and then Josephus. Now, if you look at this text, you see that Canaan isn't listed in the Masoretic Text at all in Genesis chapter 11. However, in the Septuagint, Canaan is listed, and he's given an, an age of 130 years. Now, if you notice, all of these different ages that you have here in the Septuagint all are about 100 years more than uh, what you have in the Masoretic text. Now, Josephus wrote at the same time of Christ, and when Josephus quoted this verse, he doesn't mention Canaan in Genesis 11 either. Uh, Canaan is not is not mentioned there, and so when he was reading the Septuagint, because he does use an a the the Septuagint numbers, uh, Canaan wasn't listed in the Septuagint of Genesis 11 at the time of, of Christ, or just after uh, just after the time of Christ. So where did this where did this come from? And we also know from a duplicate genealogy in First Chronicles one eighteen that there's no mention of Canaan between Arphaxad and, and Shelah either. So what probably took place is that somewhere along the line in the in the copy, copying of Luke three is that someone inadvertently in, introduced that phrase, that line from the uh, of, of Canaan. Uh, somewhere in the early second or mid mid second century, and then uh, later on that appeared in the Septuagint. We know of one uh, early church writer who wrote around 200 to 250 uh, A.D. Julius Africanus produced a, a chronology of the Bible in in AD 220, and he did not include Canaan. He follows the Septuagint just as Josephus did, and at as late as 220, there's no mention of Canaan between Arphaxad and Shelah in the in the Septuagint. So it's sometime after that 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 name is introduced into the Septuagint only by some scribe trying to make it fit uh, fit Luke. So what's the conclusion? Is that Canaan slipped into the Luke 3 p- passage by a copyist error sometime in between probably 125 and 200. And then as that became accepted as part of the text... It was later, sometime after 250 probably, that it was inserted into the Septuagint to make sure that everything uh, everything agreed. So what's the conclusion? The conclusion is that there's no evidence for a gap in any genealogy in the Old Testament. Uh, that's a closed uh, genealogy. So the next thing we can do is we can then, uh, looking at the numbers in Genesis 5, we can trace back from Noah to Adam and we see that Noah lived about 2,006 years, or the flood occurred 2,006 years after uh, Adam was created. Now, when the t- Scripture says that Adam was 130 years old when he gave birth to Seth, he had already, remember, given birth to Cain and Abel, and they had already grown to maturity, and Cain had already killed Abel. So some time had gone by. Let's just assume that 30 years had gone by to allow those two boys to grow up a little bit, that would mean that that Adam could have been in the garden for 100 years. Because when it says Adam was 130 years old, that doesn't mean 130 years from the time of the fall. You measure someone's age from the time that they're initially created. And so when Adam is 130 years of age, uh, you can 
clearly state that 130 years before the birth of Seth was when Adam was created. So this gives us a pretty sure foundation. One other thing that we see as evidence of this is with the long ages before the flood, uh, they all gave birth somewhere between uh, 50 and uh, mostly in their hundreds, whoever the, uh, the son is that's mentioned in the genealogy. And then they would continue to live somewhere between 875 and 967 years uh, years of age. And so the bottom line here represents the age they were when they uh, gave birth to the son that's mentioned in the genealogy. And the upper line here is the line that uh, of, of their their age when they died. But what happens here? Notice there is this this drop, and you can chart this drop. Uh, you can graph it out, and it fits a standard exponential decay curve. For example, if you were to take a, 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 a glass of water and you were to fill it up with, uh, with ice and stick a thermometer in it and then every 30 minutes go and measure the temperature of the ice water, it would gradually get warmer as it reached room temperature and as the ice melted, and that would be an exponential decay curve. So... Uh, you know, you didn't have uh, Moses sitting up on Mount Sinai with his little handheld calculator or with his uh, Apple uh, iBook uh, calculating out the the correct ages here uh, in order to make sure it showed uh, this exponential decay curve. That again, because it fits that perfect uh, that that curve that way, indicates that these ages are accurate. And there's no gaps in the genealogy. So that takes us back as far as we can go to the time of Adam's creation, which puts it roughly around uh, 4,000 to 4,500 B.C. And that's not too far off from, from Usher. Now, if you have an old Schofield reference Bible, and you'd see that in the middle column there at the top of the column, there's a date. And Usher stated that, I think, uh, Adam was created on October the 17th, 4,004 B.C. And people laugh at that now and joke at that, and very few people know anything about Bishop Usher. He was uh, one of he was he lived during the time of the Enlightenment in the 1600s. He was one of the most brilliantly educated men in his time, um, and he spent uh, much of his life studying history and studying chronology, studying calendars, and all of these things, and putting all of that together. And he's not some just somebody who. Uh, some backwoods Arkansas farm boy who decided he could add up the numbers in the Bible and come up with the time of creation. He put a tremendous amount of work in that. I have a, re, uh, a copy of his original work, and it's a book that's about this thick and is about eight, eight inches by 11. It is a huge book that he used to go through and trace all of the different numbers and birth numbers and everything in the Old, Old Testament. But what happened in the uh, 18th century is several men came along who were atheists who were not uh, who did not believe the Bible should be understood as a uh, in any way a, a historically accurate uh, book, and so they decided they would look at the history of the earth and trying to understand the sedimentary layers and the fossils uh, in the earth totally apart from scripture up until about the 1600s nearly everybody believed in the biblical account of a worldwide flood at, at the time of Noah but you had two key names among many that I could use that came along at that time one was uh, uh, Georges Cuvier who wrote in his uh, book Discourse on the Revolutions of the Surface of the Globe he believed that over the course of long untold ages 
the earth, uh, of Earth's history, many catastrophic floods of both regional or nearly global extent had destroyed and buried creatures in sediments. So there's multiple catastrophes, according to his theory, and all but one of these occurred before the creation of man. And so he places that very, very early. And his dates, again, are 1768 to 1832. Then uh, Charles Lyell came along and wrote his book, Principles of Geology, in the 1830s, and where he set forth a theory called uniformitarianism. And uniformitarianism became the key doctrine for all geology from that point on, that there were no catastrophes, that all natural prophecies have continued the same over history as they do today. So therefore, if you can measure a decay process today, for example, if you could go to the Mississippi River and every year measure how much uh, silt is laid down, you could reach certain, a certain average amount of silt uh, laid down in the uh, Mississippi River Delta. And if you made those measurements over 100 years, then you could extrapolate backward uh, just how long the Mississippi River had been, been running. And therefore, you could get an age of how uh, old the Mississippi River was. But it assumes that there haven't been any, any major floods, any catastrophes, that everything is continued at the same rate as it does today. And that principle is applied to all of your dating mechanisms, whether it's uh, uh, radiometric dating, potassium argon, uh, or carbon-14, or several of the other types of dating, or whether it has to do with, with uh, um, just measuring the, the uh, age of the Earth or the uh, travel of starlight through the, uh, uh, through the universe. But actually, this idea that everything continued at the same rate was predicted in Scripture. In Second Peter chapter 3, Peter talks about the end times, and he says, knowing this, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? A thousand years, where's Jesus? You Christians, you're waiting on Jesus, where is he? And then they say, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. From the beginning of time, everything continues the same process, and so this is the uh, this is the view of uniformitarianism that all things continue at the same rate. And then Peter says, "For this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was this earth that was out of the water and in the water." That earth perished, being overflowed with water. And so what he's talking about is a time when there was an earth that was in the water and out of the water. And tomorrow night we'll look at Genesis chapter 1 and we'll see that when God initially created, or was, in my view, restoring the earth, he separated the waters above from the waters below. The waters below were separated from the land, so you had the continents and the seas. So the earth is in the water and out of the water. And then that world perished by being overflowed with water. That is the Noahic flood. And so then we have the present, uh, the earth as it is presently. But the principle that is predicted here that would govern the end times is this idea of geological uh, uniformity. And in geological uniformity, the present processes are assumed to have continued for billions and billions of years. And one example of this would be radioisotope dating, and I'll just give you a couple of examples on that. 
uh, tonight before we wrap up. But the real question then is just, you know, the question that every boy asks, how do you date a rock? You go ask it out. Yeah. Okay, now there are several, pre- there are several, um, several uh, assumptions that were made in dating things. So when we, we go somewhere, you go to the Grand Canyon, you go up to uh, the Badlands in South Dakota, uh, you go to any, you go to various other uh, geological faults or whatever anywhere on the wor- around the world, and they'll say that such and such a rock or a rock layer is so many millions of years old or so many hundred thousands of years old. How do they know that? How do they date the rocks? Well, one way they date the rocks is that certain sedimentary layers have certain fossils in them. And so if they contain certain uh, lower-level life forms, they're assumed to be the oldest layer. So they date, date the layer by the fossil that's in the layer. And then, well, how do you know that that fossil's old? Well, that fossil's old because it's in that kind of a layer. So you have circular reasoning. But they're a little more sophisticated than that. They also date the, the sedimentary la- layers through various dating mechanisms. Most people have heard of carbon-14, but there are also various other methods that are, that are used. There's uh, uh, potassium argon, rubidium strontium, uh, various others, uh, uranium lead, because these various radioactive elements have uh, a half-life and they'll decay over a certain amount of time. And so they figure if you can measure how much of this radioactive element is left in the sample today, then, and you know the half-life of that element, then you can extrapolate back as to how long uh, it has been since, uh, since the decay process began and that you can therefore date the rock. So their assumption that underlies every dating system, and this occurs, this affects archaeology as much as it does uh, evolution, is their first assumption is we can observe the present condition of a rock or the processes in a system. And so we can come up with these these various measurements, and <clears throat> then we can me- because we can measure this uh, current rate of process operating within the system. We can make assumptions about the past history of the rock or system, and then we build a model. And on the basis of that model, then we can extrapolate back, and uh, so that based on present processes of decay, then we can predict how long that the uh, that the system was in operation. And so the present then becomes the key to the past. But the reality is, is that the only thing we can know with certainty is what we observe in the present. Because we're assuming that the rate has never changed. And we're assuming that nothing entered into the system um, <clears throat> that that would have affected that decay rate. We're also assuming there has been no corruption assuming a, a wide variety of different things. And I just want to give you a couple of examples that we know of where this system sort of falls apart. Uh, first of all, let me just say something about carbon-14 dating. Carbon-14 dating only works over a, a certain amount of time. For example, uh, radiocarbon or carbon-14 cannot remain naturally in a substance uh, for millions of years because of its uh, decay rate. It decays relatively rapidly. Uh, so that can, uh, carbon-14 can only be used to date things that are relatively, uh, relatively young. Uh, for example, if every atom in, on the whole Earth, every atom that makes up the Earth was carbon-14, 
then after a million years, there would be absolutely no atoms of carbon-14 left. It decays that rapidly. So carbon-14 can't be used to date anything older than approximately a million years. And uh, uh, several years ago, back about a decade ago, the Institute for Creation Research uh, raised the money to form a team of scientists, geologists, uh, meteorologists, biologists, to do an in-depth investigation and analysis of radioisotope dating systems to discover if there was consistency within the models and if there was uh, were, were any problems. And one of the things that they discovered was that they took diamonds that were uh, had been dated by evolutionists, geologists, who claimed that these diamonds were between one and two billion years old. And uh, they diamonds, of course, are a good test study for this because they're the approximately the, they're about the hardest uh, substance known to man, resistant to any kind of corruption, anything coming in uh, through the hard surface of the di- diamond that would affect the amount of carbon fourteen that was there. And so you could uh, you could study these. So the rate scientists then subjected these diamonds to. Uh, to study to determine if there was any radiocarbon in there, if there was any carbon-14 in there. And yes, in fact, they discovered that there were significant amounts of carbon-14 in all of these diamonds. They did this with numerous diamonds. They even took uh, a diamond and then they would cut it into uh, seven or eight parts and send those parts to different laboratories for testing. And those laboratories would all come up with the same uh, basic information indicating that there had not been any um, any corruption within the diamond itself, and what it showed was that these diamonds were all approximately fifty-five, sixty thousand years old. Now, <clears throat> don't take it that that number is correct. Remember, the the assumption from the geologists was that these diamonds had to be between one and two billion years old. But because of the amount of C14 in there, it, 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 they couldn't possibly be billions of years old. And so all this really shows is that uh, the amount of carbon-14 found in diamonds shows that the Earth has to be young and not old. If, it, if these diamonds were more than, uh, uh, you know, on their, uh, using their assumptions, more than a million years old, then they would not have any carbon-14, but they had a large amount of carbon-14 in there. Now, a second example of the of a young Earth and a young universe is from the Moon, and this chart here is a uh, chart describing the uh, recession rate of the Moon. That the Moon, as it orbits the Earth, creates a tidal bulge on the Earth because of gravitational pull. And as they look at the distance of the Moon and the uh, gravitational bulge, then they can see that. Uh, at some point that the moon uh, is closer to the earth so the moon is gradually pulling away from the earth and they can they can measure that and they've measured that over the last uh, century or so and it's moving uh, away at about four centimeters a year which isn't a lot but you can extrapolate back on on that number and so what this shows is that uh, based on a young earth model uh, since the, the the moon's orbit would have only shifted about eight or nine hundred feet in the last six to eight thousand years, but on an old Earth model, one and a half billion years ago, the Moon would have been on the Earth. 
So how would it even break away from the earth? These kinds of things uh, create uh, major problems. Another problem is the problem of uh, dinosaur fossils that have been found that still have uh, uh, tissue uh, on them. And if these dinosaurs were hundreds of thousands of year, lived hundreds of thousands of years ago, then why do they still have uh, have skin tissue uh, attached to the bones? That would have all disappeared uh, uh, probably tens of thousands of years ago. So the very fact that you have so- dinosaur soft tissue present in various uh, uh, fossils. Uh, one in particular with a Tyrannosaurus fossil, and then this is a picture of one from the uh, of a uh, Brachy, Brachylophosaurus, a duckbill dinosaur at the uh, uh, Houston uh, Museum of Natural Natural Science. So these are just some examples that don't fit the model of an old of an old Earth. Now, in radioisotope dating, just to give you one example. Uh, as we, I'll wrap up in about 10 minutes, but I want to just hit this very quickly. You have a U238 molecule that will break down over time to a lead molecule. And so when you look at the, uh, find these various other elements within the uh, chain of the, of its, uh, of its breakdown, you can then extrapolate back to the, uh, to the age, supposedly the age of the, uh, of the uh, of the of the molecule, and so <clears throat> these rocks are analyzed by looking for these compounds, and then once they discover and measure the amount of uh, of uh, the the uh, radioactive element in there, then they can extrapolate back to the age of the uh, of the of the rock. So U two thirty eight or uranium two thirty eight breaks down to thorium two thirty five, and that breaks down into uh, protact. Tinium-234, and on and on, all the way down to lead. So if you look at a rock and there's some uh, uranium and some lead, then you can measure the amount of lead in the rock, and then you can uh, measure the rate of decay, and then go back to the, uh, extrapolate back to how uh, much uranium there was, and therefore the age of the rock. The problem is that the first assumption uh, that they make is that the rate of decay must have always uh, been the same, that the rate of de- decay had to, uh, I guess I lost that slide, the rate of decay had to always be the same and nothing would uh, would change that. And so, <clears throat> but in fact, scientists know that, that these various uh, decay rates can be altered through different kinds of radiation, x-rays, and uh, we just don't know what, what uh, Kind of solar radiation may have been uh, subjected to over over time, and so it's just a basic assumption that uh, can't be proven. The second assumption is that the rock had to initially contain none of the daughter element. In other words, if it has uranium and lead, then it's assuming, in order to get the age of of the rock, that originally it had no lead. It had it was complete uh, uranium, complete U two thirty eight. So. We come to the third assumption, that is the rock specimen has never been contaminated. But their problem with that is that there's no absolute protection, there's no closed system on the earth, and so that, that is a totally uh, uh, fraudulent assumption. Then you get into uh, various other problems that have arisen as you try to test this on the known age of certain uh, igneous rocks. Uh, for example, uh, at the... Um, 
Sunset Crater uh, in <coughs> northern Arizona, uh, which we know to be a recent uh, volcano. There's uh, Indian artifacts and remains that are found in the area that were formed uh, in the rocks that were formed by the volcanic eruption. Uh, it is uh, accepted by Indian oral history that this eruption occurred about 900 years ago. Uh, through the use of tree ring dating, it, it's shown that the eruption occurred about 1065 A.D., so approximately 1,000 years ago. However, when the rocks were analyzed according to potassium-argon method of dating. Uh, they claimed that it showed that these rocks were formed in the eruption about 210,000 to 230,000 years ago. So you, when you're testing it, a known substance, uh, it gives erroneous information. Another example of this is Mount uh, Rangitoto in New Zealand. Uh, when uh, carbon-14... Uh, using carbon-14 on the de- trees that were destroyed by the eruption. It's, it's seen that the uh, eruption occurred approximately 300 years ago, but when the p- potassium-argon method is used, then it's seen that the eruption occurred 485,000 years ago. Then, uh, <coughs> again, in northern Arizona, at the uh, Grand Canyon of Vulcan's Throne, uh, which is an a- ancient volcano there, it's, uh, when the rocks are tested with the potassium-argon method, it's seen that this would have taken place 10,000 uh, years ago. But then when the age is, is based on the mineral olivine, it's seen that it's 117 million years old. So it doesn't uh, yield consistent uh, conclusions. And so what we discover is that when rocks uh, uh, are known, when we know how old the rocks are, uh, radioisotope dating doesn't work. It doesn't fit. When we go to a volcano, volcanic eruption, we know exactly when it occurred. We take the rocks, date them according to different systems. You come up with different, uh, different ages. But what evolution believes is that even you, rocks of an unknown age, where you don't have any information about them, then of course on those rocks, radioisotope, uh, radioisotope dating is assumed to work. So what does this give us? The bottom line on this is the the question I'm asking is when we look at the Scripture, if you take out everything that's been said by modern science since the uh, early 1700s, once they begin to suggest that the earth was more than uh, six or eight or 10,000 years of age, that all of the assumptions that they have made to come to the conclusions of, of older age are, are nothing more than assumptions. They're not provable. And then when you take the various dating mechanisms that they have developed and you uh, put those to an evaluation, you discover that they're not consistent. And once again, there's no evidence of old age on anything on the, on the earth. That creationists say... I believe that when God created, things that he created had the appearance of age. Now, some people say, well, that would make God deceptive. No, it would. When God, in, when God created a fully mature tree, you and I would look at it two seconds later, and it would look to us as if that tree were many, many years old, maybe decades old. And yet it would be only be two, two, uh, two seconds old. 
When God created Adam, He didn't create him as a baby. He created Adam at somewhere around 25, 30, 40 years of age. He looked like a mature human being, and yet He had just been created uh, a few minutes earlier. When Jesus uh, went to the wedding at Cana, and He turned the water into wine, all He did was speed up the process. Water turns into wine all the time. It just takes a, a, a... a long time for the uh, grapes to grow and for uh, the process to develop. And so Jesus just sped up the process. But if you drank the wine, it would taste as if it was wine that had been uh, produced many years earlier. But it had not. It just had the appearance of age. And so my basic thesis is that, that what has happened in the study of origins and the study of Genesis 1 is that Christians have assumed that science was right in their methodology and in their conclusions that the uh, age of the earth, the age of the universe, is very ancient. And yet, there's no, there's no real evidence. All their evidence falls apart. So there's no reason to go to science and then say, okay, well, the earth is uh, tens of thousands or millions of years old, so we have to figure out where to put that into Genesis 1. Let's expand the days, or let's put uh, millions of years between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Now, I think there is a gap there. We'll talk about that tomorrow night, and that's where Satan fell, but it doesn't have to be very long. Uh, Adam, at the most, was in the garden 90, 95 years before he fell. If, if Satan lasted that long between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, all we get is an earth that's a hundred years older than what the genealogies tell us. And it doesn't have to be uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of years. And what we do as Christians when we accept the conclusions of modern science is we basically undercut the foundations of biblical authority. And that's why it's so important is because once we start to compromise biblical authority, it can eventually cause a domino effect that that impacts every other doctrine uh, that we believe. Okay, anybody have any questions? Got a question? Mm-hmm. Was it where? I'm not sure where that that one was found. They they have found uh, a number of different uh, fossils that have uh, uh, you know di- different uh, tissues uh, still attached, and this just indicates that it couldn't have been there for uh, for very long. Whether it was in a cool area or or not, it still wouldn't be wouldn't give you uh, millions of years. No, well, you do have examples of you know some flash freezing, which I think occurred after the flood. For example, you have the mammals that were trapped in Siberia in the ice flows, things of that nature. And then when they were thawed out, uh, when explorers uh, discovered those in the late 19th century, they thawed them out and took the meat back to New York, cooked it, people ate it, things of that nature. But that's that's different from from these examples. Yes. Why do you say that? No, we don't have a lot. One species goes extinct every day. 
So just because it's not here today doesn't mean it wasn't here and doesn't mean it wasn't on the ark. Because you have, uh, when you go, all, I mean, there's a, there's a great book called After the Deluge that was written by a, uh, a British creationist where he traces back uh, numerous uh, uh, dragon legends. What's, a dragon, drawn just a little bit differently, looks like a dinosaur. And where did those ideas come from? And it's remarkable that dragon stories and dragon pictures, whether you're talking about something in South America or you're talking about something in Scandinavia or Britain or China, look remarkably the same. So was there something real there, not just sort of a common uh, common myth? But if, if dinosaurs were reptiles, reptiles never stop growing. And so if you've got dinosaurs living... 800, 900, 1,000 years like, like humans were living, then they would grow to quite a, a huge size. But it's not necessary for, uh, for Noah to take the largest size possible onto the ark. He could have taken uh, very young, uh, very small uh, dinosaurs. And just the dinosaur kind, he doesn't have to take every species or subspecies, just the, the, the kind is taken on the ark, two of every kind and seven of every uh, kind for, for, for uh, unclean and seven of every every clean kind. Yes, sir. I don't know. I, I think that I pointed that out last night. I think that in the 60s and 70s, there was a stronger, uh, probably a higher percentage that believed in a in a younger Earth. But this has uh, deteriorated uh, over the last 30 or 40 years, as many other doctrines uh, have have uh, have have lost ground. But I think that um, uh, I have no idea that anybody's done any kind of study. Nothing that I've uh, that I've seen. Uh, would indicate that one one way or the other. Any other questions? Yes. Creationists consider that there in almost every culture has a flood story. Um, uh, many have dinosaur stories, uh, but that doesn't fit the evolutionist view that dinosaurs and man didn't live at the same time. When I was in high school, I worked on a dig up on the Paluxy River just outside the Dinosaur State Park in Texas, uh, southwest of Fort Worth, where there were uh, clearly dinosaur, three-toed dinosaur footprints. And we also, as we uh, pumped out the river and, and dug out the, uh, the, the banks, we followed what we believed were, looked like human footprints. Now, since then, there's been some questions raised, and so that's not your uh, primary line of evidence uh, accepted anymore, and there's still a lot of questions about that. There are some, uh, some creationists who still accept that and believe that that's legitimate. I tend to, I mean, I was there. I, I helped dig some of those out. They, they looked, uh, if I had stuck my foot in a concrete, in some wet concrete, that's what it would have looked like. So I can't uh, come along and say, well, it looked like some kind of erosion or something like that. So um, I don't I have trouble with that. But So I, I don't see why dinosaurs and man couldn't have lived on the planet at the same time. Uh, lions and tigers live on the planet at the same time man does, but we don't live in the same habitat. 
<laughs> it would be dangerous if we did. So, okay, anything else? All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can uh, look at this information, come to a better understanding of some things in your word, and be once again be confirmed in the fact that your word is accurate, even when there appear to be uh, some discrepancies or inaccuracies that uh, some seek to exploit, that once we uh, do the homework and do the study, it appears that your word is once again accurate and without error. Uh, Father, we pray that we might uh, have our uh, faith uh, strengthened as we study these things, recognizing that uh, there really isn't any evidence to challenge the historicity of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which are the foundation of all the doctrines in the rest of the Scripture. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.